look at tonight. So last week we, we spent the bulk of the class talking about just the covenant and the importance of covenant. And you know, some people may say, why study covenant in a class on eschatology, end times? What does the covenant have to do with it? And it, the covenant's foundational to how you understand the end times. Covenant is everything from, as we're going to see tonight, why did the prophets write? Why did the prophets speak? Because of the covenant. What was the promise of the covenant? You know, when God promised to Abram, I'm going to do stuff through you. You know, why did he make the covenant? Um, And then the covenant also is important for understanding the new covenant and what Jesus came to do and why. So really covenant is one of the central, if not the central theme in all of scripture. And if we don't have a grasp or, or a reason for understanding the covenant, the book of the covenant, which was what we call the Torah, then we won't understand the rest of the stuff that follows because everything builds on it. Everything's about the covenant. And with different views, some people see the covenants as uh, all of the covenants, whether it's the promise to Abraham or even before that, the, pro- the, the creation of Adam and Eve and the mandate to go and spread through the earth. They see that as the Edemic covenant and then there was a different covenant with Noah, and then there was a different covenant with Abraham, and then a different covenant with Israel, and then a different covenant with David, and then finally a covenant with Jesus. So they see these separate covenants that, that don't really, they're just totally, not totally unrelated, but they're very distinct. And then other people, other theologians, see all of the covenants as one big overarching covenant, and it all belongs to one promise that God made. And, and where you fall on that determines a large part how you read passages of Scripture that talk about the covenant. And so I gave you all of the passages that we looked at on week five notes. So we're going to look at week six tonight because we're going to see what happened and then what the prophets came to speak about. So that's where we're headed tonight. For those of you that remember from Bible for the rest of us, covenant is the word for testament. So when you read your Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament, you're reading the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, So it really is an important concept. Okay, well, we saw that Israel was given the covenant, and then they entered into the land, and they started off well, and it seemed like they had received the land, and God had fulfilled his promises, and he multiplied them like the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea, and all of that stuff, but then immediately after Israel started going astray, they didn't do what God had commanded them to do as far as driving out the peoples of the land, the specific peoples that God told them to. And because of that, they allowed the people to remain, and over the centuries, over the generations, the idolatry of those peoples, all of the things that those people were doing that God said, don't leave them in the land because you'll end up doing what they're doing, and the land will vomit you out, as we saw in Leviticus. Israel ends up doing it. And the high point of Israel, the, the, the leaders would rise up, judges would rise up and call Israel back to faithfulness. And then uh, the last judge anointed the first king of Israel. So Samuel anointed Saul. Saul rose up and, and led Israel for a while and was faithful. But even Saul started uh, turning away from God and ultimately completely rejected God's guidance. And because of that, God took the throne away from him and gave it to David. Under David, Israel was... Probably, that, that would be Israel's uh, golden years, their, their glory days. David, for all of his faults and whatnot, David united the people 
and David didn't allow idolatry. It was, it was worship of God and God only. And that was a big part in keeping faithful to the covenant, was national worship of God rather than idolatry. David's son Solomon uh, took the nation of Israel politically and economically to even greater heights. And under Solomon's reign, Israel reached its pinnacle. And, and at, at the height of Solomon's reign, the nations were coming to Israel because of his wisdom and his relationship with God, his, how he'd been blessed. And you, you read about foreign Gentile nation rulers coming to him to learn from him. The Queen of Sheba and others, you know, want, basically doing what the promise to Abraham was given to do, which is to be a light to draw all the nations to knowledge of God. Well, at, right in the middle of that, Solomon does one little thing, and it's something that specifically Deuteronomy said not to do if you were the king. Uh, two things, actually. Uh, the first is he starts taking multiple wives. And the reason that that was spoken specifically against in the covenant is Deuteronomy 17, I believe, or 12. I look it up after. The reason is because with multiple wives, that, that was a way of sealing alliances with other countries. You know, if I want to be okay with Egypt, I'll marry the Pharaoh's daughter and that'll seal our alliance. And then I want to be okay with, you know, another nation I'll marry. And, and, and the king started doing that and started allowing them to bring their religions in. God never in the Bible is against interracial or intertribal or inter-nations um, marriages or relationships. That's never. And God's actually fine with that. But he's always against interreligious marriages because what that does is, is, is what Paul will later call unequally yoke you. And so um, you see that with Solomon is, is he starts bringing in foreign wives and their worship of their gods and allowing it. And the nation takes a nosedive as a result of it. He also uh, starts doing what Deuteronomy said not to do, where he starts levying heavy workloads on the people and taxes and building up his army and uh, just kind of buying into that world system of power. And eventually, in his reign, in his, as soon as he dies, the country splits in half. There's civil war. Ten tribes break away from the south the tribe of Judah, and the, they never reunite again. Uh, the country's kind of split, and then the prophets come into the scene. So what we see is throughout or, or during the time when Israel was at its height, when Israel was, was at its glory, and that recorded in the book First and Second Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to turn there, we'll start there. We'll see that Israel's in the land, and a key part of Israel, or, or the center of Israelite worship up until, the or even through the time of David, was the tabernacle that God had given as means by which Israel would worship Him. And He had given very detailed instructions on how to make the tabernacle, how it would function, the priest's roles, all of that. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has settled in the land and he's risen to power and he's, he's conquered and he's done all these things. And he decides, you know, I live in this palace and God lives in a tent. That's not right. I want to build God a palace. I want to build God the throne that he rightly deserves. And so David asked Nathan about it, and Nathan says, that's fine, go ahead and do it. And then in chapter 7, verse 4, God comes to Nathan, the prophet, with a message for David. 
He says, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any one of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, or that word seed in Hebrew, to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So what we get in this is the promise now within this covenant of not only would, would God raise up a ruler of the people, but he is going to, to solidify and make permanent the king of Israel being from the line of David, from the seed of David, the offspring of David. And throughout scripture, David will be held up as the paradigm of the, of, of the, it'll be like the one, any king will be sort of judged by the standard of David and, and his allegiance to God or his, his commitment to God, his ministry, his success, all of that thing, all of that stuff. So by the time of the New Testament, the longing of the people of Israel is for the offspring of David. Now David's offspring in this passage that God's talking about is Solomon. Solomon comes and builds the house of the Lord, and, and over his period, his life, he builds the temple that becomes the center of all of Israel's worship. But what interpreters, rabbis, and others, what they saw over the centuries, because it's, after Solomon's and the nation's sort of downfall, this promise seemed as if it still needed to be fulfilled fully. You know, Israel was, was exiled from the land, they, the kingship was, you know, cast down a couple of times, and, and by the time of Jesus, there wasn't even a rightful king in Israel. Herod wasn't even Israelite. He was an uh, Idumean who had been placed on the throne by Rome. And so the people longed for the rightful son of David, seed of David, offspring of David, who would come and build the house of the Lord. So this took on messianic connotations over the centuries after it was written, but initially it was written as a promise to David to establish his house. His offspring would reign forever. His house would rule over Israel. So any king of Israel to come would have to be from the house of David. Another uh, we see in, if you flip to Psalm chapter 2, there were a number of psalms that were messianic psalms. In other words, they were seen as... as um, Proclaiming the greatness of the Messiah, of the ruler. And Psalm 2 was 
if not the most well-known, one of the most celebrated. It was written originally as a coronation and a celebration of the enthronement of, the new, of, of a new king and was read presumably whenever or sang whenever a new king was enthroned. But Psalm 2 begins with verse 1, Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. And that word anointed one in Hebrew, Mashiach, the word Messiah. In Greek, it's Christos or Christ. And then he has the nations speaking, Let us break off their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, and now this is the king speaking, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so from Israelite point of view, this was a song celebrating the, the exaltation of their king and, and the fact that the, the Messianic, the Davidic king, would one day rule all of the nations. And that was a promise that, that uh, we'll, you see throughout the Old Testament, that, that the Messiah, the anointed one, the true king of Israel, who was truly obedient to the covenant and was doing all of the things that, that the nation had promised and was, was shepherding the people like David had shepherded them and all of these motifs and images, that his, his rule, his reign would extend to all the earth. And we saw that last week when we looked at some of those prophecies way back uh, about the ruler coming out of Jacob, uh, the oracle that Balaam gave, and, and uh, the blessing pronounced over Judah. And so from this, we get the idea that, that the Messiah's reign would be universal. There's two passages, you can just jot them down if you want to beside that and look them up later, but they're both from Isaiah, chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. 32, 1 through 4 and Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, both speak of this, this idea of, of this coming king who would one day rule all the nations. And so we see in Israel's history this never happened, or at least in the Old Testament, this never happens. And rather than this, we find that the promises of all these covenants are conditional, like we looked at last week. If, if we, let me see, 1 Kings which continues on the history of First and Second Samuel and goes on to tell about Solomon and him building the temple. In chapter 9, Solomon, David's son, the promised offspring of David who would build the house of the Lord, did build the house of the Lord. In First Kings, the first chapters tell all about it. And in First Kings chapter 9, there's the dedication of the temple. And that's also told in, the, in Chronicles as well. Kings and Chronicles give parallel history of what's going on from before and after the exile perspective. And in chapter 9, Solomon dedicates the temple. There's this big festival. It's a joyous celebration. And then 
chapter 9, verse 1, it says, When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, which is his place, and had achieved all that he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he, appeared to, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And that's the first time at Gibeon, the first time God appeared was, he said, basically, ask whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon, the famous ask, asking of wisdom so he could rule well. This is the second time now God appears to him. And the Lord said to him, after the dedication of the temple, I've heard the prayer and the plea you've made before me. I've consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I, command and observe, all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So again, God's coming and he's reaffirming this promise to Solomon that he made to David, but it's a conditional promise for Solomon. It's, if you will walk faithfully, then I will establish your throne. Again, the, the promises, to some degree, are conditional on faithfulness. Verse 6, But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Now, God just said... I've put my name here forever, right? He just said it right up in verse uh, 3. I've consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. And then in the very next section, he can say, but if you walk away, if you turn away and follow other gods, I will remove my name from this place. And this is important because in the, in, in, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, I wrote an article on the examiner saying all doesn't always mean all. And I used the phrase when Joseph was raised up over Egypt and was selling grain, it says all the world came to buy grain from Joseph. And that was a way of just saying all the known world. It didn't mean all. All didn't mean all. Well, in this case, in the Old Testament, forever doesn't always necessarily mean forever. Uh, God, when he makes promises or declarations, if they are by nature conditional, then human activity can play a part in how God chooses to carry that out. And so in this case, we see that the, the key for Solomon and his line to remain as king over Israel is by following God. And if they don't, God will take them out of the land and he will destroy the temple. And we'll see that that's exactly what happens. So anyway, he goes on to speak about Israel will become a byword, an object of ridicule among the nations. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to his land and to this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord brought all this disaster upon them. So Israel's all of the promises that God's made, they're very much <laughs> conditional. The covenant promises, the land promises, even the temple, even the promise to dwell in the temple. So there's, there's no such thing as this, this set in stone, at least when it comes to the covenant that he made with them, idea, and, and no matter what Israel does, they can still continue to enjoy God's favor and God's blessing. There's, there's, the Old Testament itself never gives that idea. 
Well, what we see in 2 Kings, Kings gives the account of all of the kings of Israel who came after Solomon, and some were good, most were bad. In 2 Kings 25, Jerusalem after centuries, and all during this time between when Solomon had that conversation with God that we just read and what we're about to read, all during the centuries between these times, God sent the prophets who we're going to get into in just a second to try to keep Israel, to try to turn Israel back to God. And eventually, God's patience wore out. 25.8, on the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard and an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal place, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the, of the guard, carried into exile the people who <coughs> remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. And it goes in and tells more about the destruction of Jerusalem. So covenant unfaithfulness ended up being what cost Israel the land and the temple and what drove them into exile. Just like God had promised from the very beginning of making the covenant, way back in Deuteronomy. If you don't keep my commands, this will happen. So we see that happen. And the prophets were the ones who came on the scene before, during, and after this time to try to get Israel to recognize God and to turn back to God. There's an account in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, Jeremiah 9, 11 through 16, and this was before it happened. This was Jeremiah speaking and warning the people. God speaking through Jeremiah in chapter 9, verse 11 says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will lay waste to the towns of Judah so no one can live there. What man is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? Verse 13, the Lord said, It's because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their hearts, they followed the Baals as their father taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. See, I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. I will scatter them among the nations that neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will pursue them with the sword until I have destroyed them. So you get this sense of, of God's judgment not only coming to pass, but almost of Israel having no hope if God's judgment does come to pass, and, and all of their national dreams and ambitions and, and even their covenant promises seeming to be completely done away with and annulled by God. But yet, throughout it, God holds on to His promise that He made, and there's, there's a remnant of believers. There's a remnant of faithful Israelites, and they are people like Jeremiah, who's writing this, or Ezekiel, who's writing about the same time, but in Babylon. And it's, it's through that that God works out his promises. You don't have to turn there. I just gave you the note, but, but the prophets basically acted as God's district attorneys. They were the prosecutors in a legal sense 
the covenant was a legal document. And the witnesses, instead of being surrounding nations or peoples, if you read the covenant passages, God says, I'm calling heaven and earth against you as your witness. Uh, in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is, is a little, it takes the form of a covenant uh, of a, it's like Micah is the prosecutor pleading his case and holding the people accountable and, and, and calling the nation, the mountains and, and the forests and the trees and the rocks and all of that to bear witness to God and what he did for the people. So the idea is that the people are guilty in the eyes of all creation of breaking the covenant. They have to plead guilty. And time and time again, that's the, that's the goal of the prophets is to get them to plead guilty so that they'll repent and turn for, back to God. But they inevitably end up not doing that. What we find out is that, and we're going to spend the rest of the time in the prophets, is with the time of the prophets, Israel was either on the brink of or in exile or had just returned from exile and were no longer a viable country. So Israel, we're talking about this land here, and exile over here in Babylon. This is, and, and so it was literally originally what happened to Assyria, and that's the, this yellow marking the Assyrian Empire originally came in and almost took over Jerusalem, but God saved Jerusalem miraculously. Then as Babylon rose to power, they came in about the 5th century B.C. or 6th century, 4th century B.C. and started uh, and eventually destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, all of the stuff under Nebuchadnezzar. Took a wave of people back to Babylon first, people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, and then eventually came in and finished the job, wiped out Jerusalem. And so during this time, especially Isaiah, or Jeremiah is here in Jerusalem watching it all happen. That's why he's called the weeping prophet, and he writes the book of Lamentations, is nothing but just weeping over Jerusalem after its destruction. And then Ezekiel's over here in Babylon as his nation is in captivity, and, and he's basically one of the deportees. Well, the prophets, and the prophets are a huge chunk of the Old Testament. I mean, a huge chunk. So we couldn't do a, a walkthrough of them. Rather than that, I wanted to just give some themes and some passages where the prophets speak about what God's going to do in the future. And to see these promises that God made. Because the question that Israel is asking in exile is, okay, is it over? Is it over? And there's always the pattern in the prophets of God judging the people coming to repentance after, and then God restoring. And that's the pattern that you see. And the promises of future restoration involved a new covenant. And that's one of the most foundational things. Is if Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah. We're going to be flipping around in the prophets some, but I've given you all the verses here in case we don't hit all of them. But this is one that every... Everybody, if you've been in my Sunday school class, Jeremiah 31, we've talked about so many times. This is one of those that you should just have highlighted, circled, asterisks, whatever you want in your Bible. One of the most important passages in the Old Testament. In, in Jeremiah, in chapter 30, just right before that, God makes a promise. He's speaking and he's promising what's going to happen. And he says that he would bring the Messiah in order to reestablish his people after their captivity and their destruction. He will bring, and it's in chapter 30, verse 21 says, Their leader will be one of their own. The ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near, and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me? Declares the Lord, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. 
So this promise of that this coming ruler, this coming king, would be part of what God does, and that coming king would later be identified in Jewish tradition before the time of Jesus as the Messiah with a capital M, the son of David with a capital D. You know, the the, the Davidic king, the one who all the promises that God made to David and to Solomon and that didn't get fulfilled because of, of the nation's disobedience, a future king would come still from that house, still from that line, that family, and he would rule. He would rule the nations. He would fulfill all of the promises that God had left unaccomplished because of the people's disobedience. Then in chapter, thir- in chapter 31, and starting in verse 27, 31, 27 The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow and destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. That means that the children are suffering for what the fathers did. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. Verse 31, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So we have a promise in the Old Testament of a New Testament in the Old Covenant of a New Covenant. And it would not be like the Old Covenant. It would be different. It wouldn't be like the one at Sinai because they broke that covenant and continued to break it and were never able to keep it. 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And then he goes on to say, This is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. So God promises this new covenant that he would make with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. That's, two, that's the way of saying with all of Israel. Because at this time, when Jeremiah is writing, Israel and Judah were two separate nations. They had split after King Solomon. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. God saying, the whole people of Israel, all of them, I'm going to make this promise. I'm making a new covenant. And so that's the one one of the main promises, one of the main Old Testament eschatological hopes was for this new covenant that would be different. And and it's it's it talks about that it wouldn't be like external. It would be written on their heart. It would be a, a new spirit put inside them. God would dwell within them somehow. So these are all the promises. These are the promises looking forward to the new covenant. It would also involve the people returning from exile. I will gather them and plant them in the land. So the, the people were scattered and they had no home. Well, the promise of the future God would be, well, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give, bring you back into the land and I'm going to make a new covenant with you. 
In other words, I'm going to, for better, lack of a better way to say it, we're going to start over. And, but this time we're going to get it right. So that's the promise. There would be forgiveness of sins. There would be cleansing. The Holy Spirit dwelling within God's people. And the idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out played a big part in a later prophet, Joel. If you flip forward to Joel, he's the second of the minor prophets. Joel is an interesting book in the minor prophets because it can be read at any time period. In other words, scholars aren't quite sure when Joel was written. And it seems as if it was used by Israel or seen by Israel in many generations as, as being applicable. Some, prophets, some of the minor prophets were very historically specific, but Joel has a broader uh, range of, of what he's dealing with prophetically. Joel, he doesn't introduce this concept, but we're going to introduce it here. Joel's going to talk about a number of things. One of those things is the day of the Lord. This concept, the day of the Lord, the Yom Yahweh. And the day of the Lord, or that day, or in that day, or on that day, you see this throughout the prophets, the day of the Lord became a way of talking about when God judges by vindicating His people and punishing those who oppress them. And so this, this time called the day of the Lord became a term used whenever a major evil world system, whether it's an empire or, or, or evildoers from another country or nation or whatever, at the fall of one of those, and the, the, the freeing of the people who they had oppressed and enslaved, that was considered a, a day of the Lord. And all of those were based on, or, or looked in the Old Testament, you get the idea that they foreshadowed a future, final, what we would call an eschatological day of the Lord. Capital day of the Lord. So the idea in the prophets was that they would look and they would see this, these, these cataclysmic descriptions of God coming and judging and vindicating. And then they would speak about specific events in history as embodying that judgment. We'll see the fall of Babylon, the day of the Lord image was used. Um, the fall of, of, I think, the judgment of Tyre, the king of Tyre and his fall and, and when Tyre was destroyed. So there, there, there were day of the Lord's days of the Lord throughout the Old Testament period, and, but they all seem to foreshadow or, or fall just a little short of what the prophets saw as the day of the Lord. And what that does is that, that lets us know, or that should let us know, we, we, can't, we can't always think that the prophets saw a one-to-one -one correspondence, but rather it was more fluid than that. And, and let's get in the passages so you see what I mean. In Joel chapter 2, Verse 28, and if you have the NIV, the subject heading right there is <laughs> the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, 28, and afterward, or literally I think that says in those days, or in that day, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon blood before the coming 
of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So this, this day that Joel sees involves a couple of things. The pouring out of the Spirit on all people. The prophesying of sons and daughters and the seeing of visions. Then he gives these cosmic signs, these billows of smoke and fire and the moon turning to blood and the sun being darkened. And, and then Mount Zion and Jerusalem being where deliverance comes from. Those are, those are concepts that you'll find when you read through the prophets over and over is, is the idea that, or the use of this cosmic imagery. Now, in the New Testament, what's interesting is reading this, we would expect, okay, there's going to be a, a, a time or, or a, a day when this happens. But when we get to Pentecost in the New Testament, and everybody's speaking in tongues, you know, the Holy Spirit comes, and we'll, we'll get there in a couple of weeks when we look at it. But when somebody asks, basically, what's going on here? Peter steps up and says, hey, you want to know what's going on? This is what is happening. This is being fulfilled. And he quotes Joel chapter 2. So Peter interpreted this event as at least beginning to be fulfilled at Pentecost. And that is huge because what that does is shows us that, that from our perspective, we can't say, well, none of these things have happened yet. Because clearly Peter thought that Joel 2 had happened. Um, more on that, I guess, when we get there. But the day of the Lord, it's the judgment on wicked, and it's the vindication of the faithful. It's also described in terms of a final a battle. The, the, the imagery of day of the Lord a lot of times is this warrior imagery. If we keep reading in Joel, right after he finished saying that, chapter 3, in those days, at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. There's the exaltation and restoration vindication. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And the valley of Jehoshaphat, is, that just means the valley of God is judge. And it's, it's this, there's, there's not a historical place called the valley of Jehoshaphat. Rather, it's a figure that God's using here. It's, it's saying, I'm going to judge them in this valley. People, by linking, by reading later uh, prophecies in Revelation and others about this uh, mountain and valley of <coughs> plain of Megiddo, They've linked it and said, well, it, needs, it has to be this, and it's describing the same thing. But in this context, at least, we don't know. We just know there's this valley. It, he refers to it as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Is it a literal valley? I don't know. Is he speak, how literal is he speaking? That's questions that we have to work through and answer on our own as we read and study. But he says, I'll bring them to the valley of Yahweh the judge, and I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, the people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes and sold girls for wine that they might get drunk. Uh, he goes on to say down in verse 9, he goes on to list the crimes that, that this nation had done. And he's speaking at this point, he's speaking of these nations Tyre, Sidon, the regions of uh, Philistia, you know, all of these nations that came in and kind of destroyed Israel. Those are who he's referring to as going to make war against. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. 
Prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. So there's this, this mocking call of the nations, the oppressive nations. Come on, bring, bring all your people on. Come, come try to destroy my people. Come gather against them. And he gives an ironic twist to a famous phrase of beating your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks, and it comes from the prophets. He is saying the opposite. He's like, okay, fine, you know, get all your weapons that you want. Bring them down. Turn your, spear, your pruning hooks into spears to fight with. Turn your plowshares into swords. Bring it all against the people. Then in verse 12, let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Yahweh judges. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate and Edom a desert waste because of violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. So Joel ends it, his book, his uh, prophetic book, with this judgment being spoken of against the nations. And in Joel, those nations were Egypt and Edom and all these nations that had come in when Israel had been exiled and, and were at their weakest, or if this is written after the exile when they had returned and were still at their weakest, these other nations coming in, Edom's here and Egypt's down here, coming in and, and, and shedding innocent blood, destroying them, enslaving them, taking advantage and oppressing them. And Joel pictures, describes this, this, this all right, God's, God's going to have judgment day. He's going to do it, and he's, he's, he's going to gather all you nations into a valley and judge you. And he uses imagery, vivid, vivid prophetic imagery of, of uh, harvesting with a sickle and, and treading on a wine press. You know, that's where you put a bunch of grapes into something, and you just stomp on it, and, and it just kind of mushes them into pulp, and the wine runs out, and that's the image that he uses. So it's just this vivid warrior imagery. Now, a number of people and, and interpreters throughout the years have wondered, okay, what is this, you know, how's this going to happen? And, and is, this, is this literal? Is he literally going to do this? Or is this prophetic um, symbolism, vivid imagery, meant to warn and to shock and to get people to repent and turn to God? I'll, I'll leave that in your hands because you make up your own mind on that. But the idea is that the prophet spoke of this final battle that would involve judgment on evil, Israel being restored, and God dwelling in Zion, his holy mountain. Zion is the mountain where the temple was built forever. All of the things that the covenant, had they been faithful, promised them. 
that's what they look forward to. All right. Do you see this in uh, Isaiah, who was just a few books back? I'll give you, I didn't, this isn't on your sheet, but I'll give you a passage to look at on your own that's similar to this. Uh, this, this isn't on your handout, but Isaiah 34, verse 1 through 4. It's, I'll just read it for you. You can look at it later. Isaiah 34, 1 through 4. The same idea about gathering the nations in judgment. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that's in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with blood. All the stars of heaven will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll and all the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. So again, you have in Isaiah 34, 1 through 4, God describing this final judgment on all the nations. And that was a way of referring to the nations who had oppressed and, and attacked his people. And, and it, it, again, you see this cosmic imagery. Stars not shining and the sky being rolled up like a scroll. This passage particularly is John draws from in Revelation multiple times to describe what he sees as the final judgment. Um, so again, that's just Isaiah 34, 1 through 4, and also 8 through 10. So just read through Isaiah 34 sometime for more of this. But, but the, prophets, the prophet's point was very much to overwhelm the people with these, these words and visions. They, the, the prophets were all about shocking people because Israel was on the verge of being utterly destroyed for their sins. You couldn't just come up as a prophet. You couldn't just walk up and be like, guys, come on. We need to be a little nicer. Stop sacrificing your children to Moloch. Stop having sex orgies and worship of Baal. Stop a pre you, know, you, you can't do that. The prophets had to come in and be like, okay, you want to be like these nations who, who lift up and raise up and exalt their supremacy and their cosmic you know, like the, the, the kings of other nations would refer to themselves as the gods or their nations would be like using this cosmic imagery to describe their importance and their significance. And the prophets had to come along and say, fine, let me tell you about real cosmic significance. Let me tell you about real bloodshed, real violence, real justice. Let me tell you about the king of kings and what he will do to these nations. So the prophets were very much, when you read it, they're not cuddly. Uh, they're very shocking, and they're very graphic, and they're intentionally so. They, they do the same. They have, they're trying to wake the people up from spiritual apathy. It's a lot like um, the story in World War II, I believe, when the prison camp, when the Nazi death camps were liberated, and the generals would have the townspeople from Auschwitz or Dachau or wherever walk them through and show them the bodies of the, the people in the prison camps or the emaciated, you know, and people would just be weeping and crying. Or William Wilberforce, the abolitionist you know, who opposed slavery, he would take these rich noblemen of <coughs> the British upper class who were kind of like, yeah, slavery, it's not great, but what can you do? And he would take them through the galleys of slave ships, and they would smell the smells, and they would see the horror. And you know, it was very shocking. 
It's, it's what people that uh, today, people that oppose abortion, and they show the pictures of you know, fetuses torn apart, and people are like, oh, that's disgusting, it's bad taste. They're intentionally doing that to shock people, to confront them with what they see as their sin in order to get them to change. And that's what the prophets are doing. So they speak of this that using, using all kinds of images that we find just bizarre Not sometimes. Not necessarily this imagery, imagery will come to pass. Well, in, in the sense that we have to be careful. And I, w- I won't say a yes or a no because, again, this is part of your ongoing study. You'll have to determine what you think. But when the prophets speak of an event, how literal do we press the details? And some people will say all the way. You know, Tim LaHaye and others, they say all the way. It's all literal. Other people would say none of it's literal. It's just to evoke a feeling. Well, truth is probably somewhere in the middle of there. One example would be in Malachi. This is just an example that shows you the nature of prophecy. In the book of Malachi, last chapter, God says, Behold, I will send my messenger Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. His job will be to turn you back to me. Okay? So God promises literally to send the prophet Elijah to turn the people back to him. Well, you read through Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John, and what you find out when the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, what what about Elijah? Is Elijah coming? And Jesus says, Elijah is not only coming, he's already come. And you saw what they did to him. And then the text says, he said this about John the Baptist. He was the Elijah to come. And Jesus says, let him who has ears hear. So Jesus interpreted one very specific prophecy. that Because remember, Elijah didn't die in the Old Testament. Elijah was just taken up into heaven. So there was always this idea of he'll come back. You know, and the prophet said, yeah, I'm going to send my prophet Elijah back to you. So literally, the prophecy was Elijah would come back literally. Jesus, who's probably the best interpreter of Scripture, says, yeah, that happened. But it wasn't literally Elijah. It wasn't anyone descending from heaven. It was my cousin John, who was born to my aunt Elizabeth who grew up and hung out in the desert with the Essenes and who preached in the wilderness. All of these things that Malachi had talked about, Jesus said, yeah, John was the fulfillment of that. So if no other interpreter in history ever recognized it, it still wouldn't matter because Jesus recognized it, that John was the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. So if John can be the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy, then that tells us at least one prophecy in the Bible can't be interpreted literally. It doesn't mean, now Jesus didn't say that that prophecy was fulfilled. He didn't say it was spiritualized away. He, I mean, it, it was fulfilled. It happened. It was just fulfilled in a way that they didn't recognize until after it happened. And lo and behold, that's the exact same thing that we see with Jesus and his own prophecies about the suffering servant and all of that. Is they were Those prophecies, they were thinking Israel, the nation, is the suffering servant or the king on the throne. Lo and behold, the carpenter executed outside of Jerusalem becomes a fulfillment. So when interpreting Old Testament prophecy, we have to be careful how far we push these images for literalism. We can't just say, take them all literally, and if there are any conflicting details, it must refer to two events. That's the, the dispensational method. That's, Jesus didn't do that method. There was a sense of, yes, there is such a thing as a spiritual fulfillment of what at the time seemed like a literal promise. 
And we see that throughout the New Testament, like Peter at Pentecost, fulfilling, saying Joel 2 has begun to be fulfilled. So um, you can look, if you want to, after Isaiah 66, the end of Isaiah, it talks about God, again, part of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord would be this, this tenderness for Israel. And in Isaiah 66, it's really cool because it talks about not just Israel being, you know, we always think God in the prophets, God's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to restore Israel and Israel's going to be good and this and that. But in Isaiah, what we see is that God's going to restore not just Israel, but also Gentiles as well. We'll bring them back in. Listen to this. Chapter 66 of Isaiah, verse 17. For, let's see. Yeah, verse 18. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues that they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and the Lydians, famous archers, to Tubal and to Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard my name or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord, they will bring them. As the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So again, Isaiah ends his, his prophecy, his whole book, with the idea that God will gather his people, bring his people to Jerusalem from all the world now. He, even in the Old Testament, you get this idea that this, this promise is being expanded beyond just ethnic Israel but to all the world, and they would all come to Jerusalem. They would be priests. And, and then at the end, in good prophetic fashion, there's that warning. You will see God's judgment. And he gives the image, the bodies of the slain lying there and everything. And, and he uses an image, the, the, the worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. Same image Jesus picks up on and uses when he describes the final judgment that awaits people who don't turn to the Lord. So uh, we've, what we see, if at least in looking at the prophets is Jesus was very much in line with the Old Testament prophets and pulled a lot of his imagery, I would say most of his imagery, from directly from their words. So, day of the Lord, tenderness for Israel, salvation, um, bringing the, the lifting up of Zion, the exaltation of Israel, and the punishment of the wicked. Part of two sides of the same coin. God's judgment always is a blessing and a curse. A blessing to those who are faithful, who are trusting in him, and a curse to those who have rebelled against him. Um, you see that throughout. Well, another aspect of what the Old Testament prophets look forward to is that the future glory would be greater than anything that, they, that had ever been experienced by Israel. The return of the exiles, uh, Jeremiah in chapter 3, we won't turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 3, he even makes the claim, he says, You're not even get, there won't even be an ark there won't even, you're not even going to know it's gone. You're, 
in other words, so great will be what's going to come when God restores the people that, that there won't even be what in Israel was the most sacred center of their religious life, which was the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the actual tablets were kept, the center of their nation. One of the promises also, in addition to gathering the nations and restoring and reuniting Israel and Judah and them living in the land, is that uh, Jerusalem would be the throne of God and God would dwell with his people. We see that promise over and over. We won't look at these either right now, but I've given them to you. Micah 4 and Isaiah 2. These are parallel passages. In fact, much of it's word for word. Some scholars wonder, okay, did Micah copy Isaiah? Did Isaiah copy Micah? I had to write a paper in seminary <coughs> on who copied who. Uh, I came to the conclusion that God can speak to two people the same message, and what, I think that's what's going on there. But regardless, Micah 4 Isaiah 2 both speak about the mountain of God, Mount Zion, being lifted up, and the nation streaming to it. it. uses the phrase flowing like a river. The nation streaming to Mount Zion to learn, to worship, to, to receive Torah. And it uses the word Torah, which means teaching or instruction. So this promise in Israel developed that, you know, I, you, 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 were, you were exiled far away. You're beaten down. You came back into the land, but you never quite achieved this sense of, of glory that's promised. And even by Jesus' day, it, didn't, it was far from being achieved. Israel lived in the land, but they didn't have their own king, a real king, and they were controlled by foreign powers for centuries. And so they remained, in, as N.T. Wright would say, in exile in their own land, longing for these promises to come true, for these promises to happen. Isaiah 14, again, Throughout, and we'll just we'll take a brief walk through Isaiah, through a couple of these passages, and then we'll talk about Ezekiel and be done for the evening. But in Isaiah 14, it begins, it says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob once again. He will choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Aliens, or I mean foreigners, will join them and unite with the house of Jacob. Right there, black and white. This coming day of the Lord, coming covenant, these, whatever. It's going to involve not just Israel, but also Non-Jews would come and join them, be united with them. Uh, nations will take them and bring them to their own place, and the house of Israel will possess the nations as men servants and maidservants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. In other words, there will be a, a turn of fate. Those who were oppressed will then be the ones who are exalted. Those who did the oppressing will be the ones that are humbled. Then here's where Isaiah... It's like Isaiah gives these promises, and, and there's promise of restoration, but there's warning of judgment, and then followed by another promise. Well, in chapter 25 is when he starts getting really crazy, in a good way. 25, 6 through 8, Isaiah says this. This is adding to what's going to happen. On this mountain, which is Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. All right, so right then... There's this image of a banquet and a feast. Well, Jesus, you know, he talked a lot about the banquet and the feast and everything. And here again is a question of literalism. If there's going to be a banquet of the choicest meats in this new thing, that means that animals will have to die. That means death will still be around. Wait a minute. How can you? That's where how far you want to press something literally can have an effect. And, and, and you know, so... That would lead some people into a theological conundrum and trying to explain it 
I don't have a, I don't press it for literalism, <laughs> at least not in that sense. There was a Simpsons, there was a Simpsons episode, by the way, where Homer, they re-showed the Garden of Eden, they retold Bible stories, and they had Homer as Adam and Marge was Eve, and it was the Garden of Eden, so everything was perfect, and Homer's sitting there relaxing, he's like, oh, this is great, and then this pig walks up, and he's like, good morning, sir, would you care for some ribs? And Homer's like, sure, and he just like pulls the ribs out, and the pig hops up, and he's like, I'll see you tomorrow, <laughs> so the idea of fresh ribs always on demand <laughs> so maybe that's what god's gonna do i don't know but here's the promise <laughs> wouldn't that be phenomenal <laughs> here's the promise though on this mountain all right not only is he going to make a feast on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples the sheep that covers all nations he will swallow up death forever the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Revelation. So now you get the promise being expanded, not just to include, okay, God's going to bring us back in the land and he's going to make us prosperous and wealthy. And he's even going to let Gentiles come in who worship him. And I, but he's going to destroy. Now Isaiah is talking about something that's beyond anything that people can imagine at this point. He keeps going in the next section, 26, 19 through 21. Uh, it talks about all of those who have, have died and, and who God's uh, disciplined and the nations that have downfallen and the dead that don't rise, etc., etc. Then in verse 19, But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So now you get this sense and the idea... And Daniel 12, we'll see, hopefully next week, picks up on this, that this defeating of death doesn't just mean that in the future people won't die anymore. It means that all those who death has held up till then will come out. Resurrection. They'll be raised. This idea of bodily resurrection, because as N.T. Wright points out in Surprised by Hope, over and over and over, if people stay dead, then death stays the victor. Defeat of death involves overturning and undoing what death took, what death claimed. And in the case of people, it involves getting back the body that death took from us. The point is that the promise of the Old Testament prophets that, that they looked forward to also involved the undoing of death, the defeating of death, and the resurrection of the body. Uh, then in 27... Just the uh, same section going right along. In 27.1, he uses this, it says, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce and great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. And that's just one instance. There's five mentions in the Bible of this Leviathan character. And in the ancient world, in Israel's surrounding culture, Leviathan was the mythological chaos dragon beast. I, I mentioned this Sunday, if you were here for the message, that throughout the world there was this notion that, that, that the forces of evil were at their core controlled by this dragon beast monster thing. And in the Old Testament, you see the prophets and, and books like Job that use poetry and use imagery and, and cosmic imagery. They pick up on that, even in the Old Testament, and say, yeah, God's going to destroy Leviathan. God's going to crush his head. Or, or as in Job, God comes in and gives a speech and he says, hey, 
I go fishing for Leviathan. That's how powerful I am. I'll pull him out with a fish hook. I tell him what to do. In other words, it's, it's taking the, rather than trying to say, well, this is explaining dinosaurs. and but In the context, God's using the most powerful image and the most <laughs> vivid images of evil or suffering or all of the results or, or all of the things that Israel fears and saying, I have dominion over those as well. Even that will be destroyed. In, in, in the coming creation, in the coming fulfillment of these promises, your worst nightmares will be completely overthrown. And so this phrase of crushing the head of Leviathan in the Old Testament context would have been read alongside of the promise back in Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent. Part of God's fulfilling His plan that He made way back was the defeat of Satan, the undoing of death, all of that stuff. So you see in the prophets this cumulative picture that they're painting of what all God's going to do. The prophets weren't just coming along giving kind of like spot predictions here and there. They were, they were painting a picture of God's redemption, not just of His people, but of redeeming His people as the first fruits or as the beginning of His redemption of all creation. Rescuing all creation from what it had gotten itself into through humanity. And the New Testament picks up and expands on this in a number of places. God gives His promises, what He's going to do, and, and His invitation. As Isaiah builds towards the end, especially from 40 through 66, it's like the promises that God's making of the new, what he, when he, the day of the Lord, the, the fulfillment of all this stuff, they just keep escalating. And in 56, 3, God says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, oh, I'm only a dried up tree. For this is what the Lord said. In other words, I can't have kids, so I'm worthless. I can't bear fruit. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. In other words, I will give you stuff that's even better than the thing that you value and cherish the most. You can't have kids? Well, hey, i got something greater than kids for you. To the eunuch. I'll give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And to foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship Him, all who keep Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. This is why Jesus was so angry when, when in the temple. The only place that foreigners could come to the temple was the outer courts. And the, that's where the money changers were setting up shop and keeping foreigners out. And that's why Jesus was so angry. Not because the money changers were cheating people. We have no reason to believe they were cheating people. It's because they were keeping the nations from being able to approach God as the command was from the beginning. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what Jesus quotes. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others besides those already gathered. So in other words, God's promise through Isaiah is even Gentiles are going to be together accepted by me under this new covenant. And then in chapter 62, and this is the key for the millennial debate. Chapter 62 and, and through the end begins with his promise, his new, this, this, what he's going to do with Jerusalem. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. 
The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your land be desolate. Excuse me. But you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a, yeah, Hephzibah means my delights in her and Beulah just means married. Um, in other words, this bride imagery, this wedding imagery. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I've posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm, Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies, and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. So this promise of Jerusalem, the city, the nation, being lifted and restored, um, all of their, the promises of the land being utopian and wonderful, those are going to come true and happen as well, Isaiah says. And then 65, 17, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. And he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered cursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, for as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but the dust will be the serpent's food. That's alluding back to Genesis 3. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now, the question, and we're going to end it, we'll pick up Ezekiel next week because we'll look at Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah because those are the somewhat apocalyptic. But here's the big Here's where the entire millennial discussion, at least with Old Testament, hinges. God promised to bless Israel, restore her land, give her the crops, all these things. That promise, at least up until this point, hasn't happened. There are two interpretations within what we've talked about, amillennial and historic premillennial, that Christians have held. Historic premillennials said, and still say, God's going to keep these promises within history. To Israel. He's going to make Israel this wonderful whatever. 
And by reading Revelation 20 and, and the rest of the, what we see is the only time that that can happen is during this earthly millennium that Jesus sets up before final judgment, new creation, new heavens, new earth. God will keep his promises. Now, he'll, it'll involve, in contrast to dispensationalism, premillennialists, historic premillennialists have said, now it'll involve all of us, though. I mean, the, the passages are so clear of Gentiles being included in this. Did you see how many passages we read where Gentiles were included? That alone is enough to dispel any notion that dispensationalists have of these blessings are just for ethnic Israel. No, 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 not in the prophets. Therefore, all the faithful, whether they're eunuchs or foreigners, whether they're anybody that's joined themselves with the Lord, the question is, will it happen in this period of time that we find ourselves in? Is there a future time when, when Jesus will return in order to make these things happen in this time and space? And what premillennialists point to is verse 20. They say verse 20 talks about people living and dying. So the only time that can happen is before the final judgment and the new creation because that's part of the promise is people won't die after, you know, final judgment, new creation, heavens, all that. So that's where premillennialists point to. And it's a strong argument. And it's an argument that amillennialists have to consider the weight of. The amillennialists respond. That this is how they answer back. First of all, the amillennialists have to say, okay, that's a good point. And, I, and, and rather than skirting around it, I'll, I acknowledge that this presents a difficulty, verse 20, for an amillennial understanding. However, what amillennialists point back is they say, but back up. And you see that Isaiah himself says specifically that this is describing the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 17, <coughs> Behold, I will create a new heavens, new earth. Former things will not be remembered. They will come to mind, or nor will they come to mind. The amillennialists say Isaiah's very depiction of the new heavens and the new earth is what this section says it's talking about. So we have to be, as uncomfortable as it might make us, we have to say, okay, I don't know exactly how to interpret verse 20. And amillennialists have put forward different ways. They've said it doesn't, it, it's not speak, it, the promise is not to say how long people's lifespans will be until they die. The promise is that right now, when, when Isaiah is writing to Israel, infant mortality rates were like next, I mean, practically zero, and, or they lived to practically you know, zero age. They, it was rare that infants survived their early years. Old people didn't live that old. The conditions were horrible. Everything was awful. Isaiah sees a picture or an image and, and says, hey, it's, it's going to be so amazing that even living to 100 would be considered like a baby. In other words, what I'm going to say is this chapter 20, we can't, just like we can't pr take a lot of literal details of prophecies as describing you know, things that they weren't meant to describe. We have to understand that this was speaking about the promise of, of a life where you don't die when you're an infant and a life where death isn't constantly with you and people aren't dropping like flies because of hunger and famine or whatever. And so the amillennialist response is, yes, verse 20 seems to teach, if you take it at literal face value reading, that people will live and die during this time, but it'll just be for a longer period of time. And that is a point in the premillennialist, a feather in their cap. Premillennialists have to recognize that Isaiah himself is saying or talking about this in the context of the new heavens and the new earth. 
So for them to say, well, this applies to something before the new creation, that's reading that into this passage. This is, to me, this is why I say, when I talk to people, I say, both sides make good points. And I, myself, haven't landed solidly on one side or the other. I lean amillennial just because of the nature of approaching the prophets in a more fluid and not as literalistic manner. But at the same time, I can't shortchange the importance of this passage and the, the mention of death and all of that, especially after Isaiah had already talked about back in we saw in the earlier chapters, destroying death. And now he mentions it. So how do you, I, I don't, at the end of the day, I have to say, I don't know, Lord, exactly. But I have to take all of this together. We have to take all of this together and see what the Old Testament hopes and longings were for. Next week, what we'll look at is we'll look at Ezekiel, and we're not going to go in depth because I've just given you Ezekiel in the chapters, but this will be good reading for next week if you wanted to get into it. The end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees this vision, and he's very clear it's a vision, and it's a, almost an apocalypse. It, it could fit the mold of apocalyptic, and so that's why we'll look at it with Daniel and Zechariah, the other two apocalyptics. But the question will become, at the end of next week, what were the Old Testament eschatological hopes? What were they looking forward to? Were they looking forward to something thousands and thousands of years ahead of time and, and involving ethnic Jews? And In other words, did the Old Testament not see the church in any of this? Are all of the images of what God would do just describing national ethnic Israel, like popular dispensationalist proponents would argue? Or is the church in some way, in a very unexpected way, a fulfillment of this? And if it is a fulfillment of, of the Old Covenant promises, how far of a fulfillment? In other words, how much has the church fulfilled? Because some Christians, the complete opposite of dispensationalists, would say the church fulfilled all of it and all of the promises to Israel about land and safety and all this are to be spiritualized and seen as being fulfilled within the church. And that was a popular view in, in, throughout the centuries. Dispensationalists said, no, that means God totally changed his mind and did plan B. And what, well, as we'll see, there might be a middle alternative that takes into account. So, all right, well, we covered a lot, but we got through all of the prophets. So you've seen the covenant, the Torah, the prophets. We're going to look next week at the apocalyptic. We're going to introduce apocalyptic as a genre because that will set you up for understanding Revelation. If you just read through the passages that you read, I'm about to go tomorrow, I'm leaving to go teach Revelation a weekend seminar. And uh, what I'll share with them is the same thing with you. If you immerse yourselves in the Old Testament prophets, then when John starts describing stuff in Revelation, rather than seeming weird and scary, you start to see what he's doing. He's, he's kind of saying, hey, all these things God's still doing and bringing to fruition. So we'll see how that works out.